Hi, I'm Ozzy Jurok. I'm the host of OzBuzz, where we interview interesting people and their journey to success. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Justin Smith, who is the president of Hawkeye Wealth, a company that specializes in wealth generation through investment in real estate. Hi, Justin. Hello, Ozzy. How are you doing? Really good. I'm glad you made it. Thank you for having me. So the, your journey has been kind of an interesting. Were you always, did you go straight into the investment business? Uh, certainly not. I've always enjoyed investing ever since I was a, a teenager. The, the concept of compound interest, of course. Really? As a teenager? My, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was pretty uh, fortunate that way, I suppose, to have gotten onto it at an early age. Uh, I actually did my, my undergrad in psychology. I thought I was going to get into it. And, and then third year comes around and they start getting into the really goofy stuff. And <laughs> you think maybe I don't want to deal with this every day. Uh, and so after I realized I didn't want to do that, I finished up my degree and, and uh, did my, my master's in business, my MBA here in town. And, and uh, shortly after, my landlord, in fact, uh, introduced me to, to your conference. That's how I got into real estate, Ozzy, <laughs> many, many years ago. Uh, and I, you know, he was a very successful man, really looked up to him and, and was doing very well for himself. And, and I just couldn't believe it when I walked into your conference that I think you had six, 700 people there. I was just blown away that the topic could, could attract that many people. So met some very key contacts there and, and that really changed the, the trajectory of my life where I started getting into real estate. Yeah, and then you started out in sort of in the sales area of things and learned a bit. Yeah, yeah. Start, started out working with a developer uh, selling pre-sales and of course you go through the classic, uh, anytime you get into a job where you're 100% commission or, or yeah. you, you go through the classic struggle that most people go through and you, you realize that you, you actually... You only eat what you kill. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, uh, you have to get results and if you don't, you make, yeah. you make zero bucks and that comes with all the wonderful stresses of life from, <laughs> you know, pressures you have on yourself, pressures your spouse has on you to get it together. So. Uh, I got, got started doing that and, and after a lot of pain started having success, started thinking I was pretty smart and after you know a year or two of making some, some, good, some good money doing that, I realized that uh, I wasn't that smart, that everyone that was actually buying and owning the real <laughs> estate was making a lot more money than I was. So, so fortunately I was in a position to start building my own portfolio and, and thankfully I'm, I'm in a business where I can help other people do the same. So. Is that what made you decide to get into the investment business? Is seeing other people being successful? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a big part. I mean, first of all, I, I like investing myself, and second of all, yeah, I was ha had the opportunity to help others go and and grow their portfolios, and and I've done that in different capacities. As I said, I started doing pre-sales here, and now I'm working a little bit more uh, doing private equity, real estate deals, but it's all ultimately. Uh, real estate that I've done for the last decade. And so is that what Hawkeye Wealth is all about then? Is that what you do? You got it. The technical term for Hawkeye Wealth is an exempt market dealer, but where we focus is on private equity real estate, primarily commercial real estate. So this is going to be your, uh, your commercial real estate entails industrial, retail, multifamily and office. We focus more specifically on multifamily and industrial. These are the two asset classes that we're more focused on. Mm -hmm. um, and then we go and we find opportunities out there and, and we introduce them to our investors. So we're, we're actually in the, I don't call it the matchmaking business here, but that's pretty much what we are. We find opportunity and we connect it with our investors. You could have, you had a choice. So at the time, I think you could have just joined another investment uh, exempt dealer, but you chose to open your own company. Yeah, for 
for me, I uh, a couple of years back, I had an opportunity to either go and when you're an exempt market dealership, you can, like you say, you can either go join somebody else's firm or, or you can set up your own shop. And I can tell you, especially in the short term, it would have been a lot less work uh, to go and, and join someone else's firm. And there's a few reasons that I decided to go and, and uh, do my own thing. And, and it really revolves around what the biggest risk of my business is, which is losing trust. Uh, you, it takes, and as you know, Ozzy, you've been in the business now for many decades, it takes a long time to build trust at scale. Yeah. And anything that could jeopardize that trust is, for me, the biggest risk that, that I face at Hawkeye Well. So for me, it became a question around uh, control, uh, really. I just wanted to be able to control the two main things, which is the product, the deals, and the service. And if I didn't have my own firm, uh, I thought it was just a little bit too much of a you risk. You always to depend not on somebody else, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. Particularly as an exempt dealer, you have the Securities Commission makes you uh, do certain things that by law you have to have. I think they have a way that you have to have the client's interests at heart, you know, they, they actually have certain terms that they use. You have to have compliance officers to make sure. That the clients actually qualify to get into those investments. Correct, correct. There's, it's very heavily regulated. We have <coughs> annual audits as well that we have to go through. Um, not just not just regular audits, but IFRS audits. They're pretty significant and and uh, and expensive. Um, but it's important. I think it's uh, the idea of the regulators is they create trust throughout the industry. So I know a lot of people like the fact that there's someone looking out over the firm sure. and and somebody that if we're making recommendations that aren't suitable for our clients, that there's you know there's somebody that that's checking up on that. So, but also the client. I mean, not everybody can buy your kind of investments. Yeah, well, I mean, th there's certainly risks in in what we do, right? And in any time, any type of real estate, there's risk, especially when there's leverage involved. If you go and you you know you buy the the condo next door and you only put twenty percent down, and the market decreases by thirty percent, and sure. for whatever reason you had to sell, you not only have you lost all your money, you've lost all your money and and, and then, then some, some yeah. right? So, I mean, that's why people join your group to go and and get good information and good research to take as much risk out of that as possible. But when you're doing private equity deals, an, an added component is the potential lack of liquidity in the deal. So when you invest in one of our deals, I kind of, the analogy I use is a, is a gondola. You hop on at the bottom and you get off at the top. And if you've gotten off somewhere in between, it probably hasn't been a very good experience. It's yeah. for you. <laughs> so, so you're in for the duration of the deal, and is that three years? Is that five years? Is that ten years? Um, it can really vary depending on on the game plan and and what the markets do. So, clients have to have a certain amount of wherewithal to be able to go through that lack of liquidity. And the Securities Commission, uh, the way they do this is by ensuring for a number of deals that clients qualify as what they call accredited investors, which is basically a, a financial wherewithal and sophistication So are there test. rules that make an accredited investor? Yes, yes. There's a number of things that can qualify <coughs> you as an accredited investor. It's not a test or anything like that. Uh, the main, the main uh, things that would qualify you as an accredited investor, you don't have to qualify under all three of these, but usually you qualify under one of these three, would be an income test. So you make 200000 plus per year or 300000 combined with your spouse. 
you expect to do it this year and you've made it for the previous two years as well. The second test would be the net financial asset net financial assets test, which would include cash, securities, or a life insurance policy with a cash surrender value. It does not include real estate. So right, if you have yeah, if you did, so if, if you, you have a five million dollar house, if you had a five million dollar house and three million dollars in equity, and let's say this was even an investment property, not yeah. your principal residence, that still wouldn't count towards net financial assets. So stocks, cash. And and uh, and life insurance policy. With well, the government value. says, okay, if you have these kind of assets or that kind of income, you should have the wherewithal to make the right decision, right? Correct. It's a it's a thing around liquidity. What they're concerned about is if you don't have liquidity on your exempt market products that we offer, that that you should have liquidity elsewhere. And and they've decided that investment real estate is is not liquid enough to. So to have the so you said wherewithal. multifamily. So so you would. Uh, how do you how do you pick a multifamily building to represent? Boy, you know we we really like the value add plays right now. What our overarching belief is is we've had an incredible run for the last nearly decade. Happy ever, yeah. There has been a lot of money made in real estate over the last decade, and and. Our expectation is is that the next five to ten years on the appreciation side isn't going to be as good as the past as the past five to ten years have been. Now I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know whether that's going to be the case, but that's that's the overarching belief that we have at Hawkeye. So the question is is how do you go and and deliver solid returns? And I see a, a couple of ways to do this, but a big part of it is finding deals where people add the value, not the markets. Uh, you know, I think if you're sitting around waiting for the markets to do stuff, I think you're gonna... Uh, you could gonna be, be right, but more often likely you're gonna be wrong. Yeah, because people as unpredictable and crazy as we are, Ozzy, I think they're, <laughs> we're more predictable than markets still. So I would say that uh, multifamily in particular, if you can go find a, an opportunity where there's value to be added, you know, there's been it's been under-rented, Maybe it uh, hasn't had a renovation in a long time. You've got an owner that's a bit out of touch. Maybe they just haven't been, you know, they haven't been paying attention or keeping on top. Of it, yeah, go. yeah. If you can find those opportunities, what you're able to do is go and, and bring in experienced management and go and turn that building around. Because as you know, multifamily and all commercial assets are priced like businesses, where the more income they sure. produce. The more they're the more they're worth. So if you can take an asset that's not producing as much income as it should and and turn it around, then you have forced the appreciation on that building, regardless of what the market is doing. So whether you're forcing that appreciation through multifamily, or you're doing that through you know we we do furnished we do a furnished rental deal as well where the value add is is going and getting way higher rents than you'd be going and getting on an unfurnished But you might model. have some capital investment in the furniture, for instance, or on the upgrades that are needed or something. Not not just in the furnished rental, but in everything. Right? Correct, correct. <coughs> if you're going to do a multifamily building, it takes a certain amount of capital outlay to go and do these renovations. And sometimes if you're completely repositioning a building, you have to have a certain amount of capital to go and, and get the riffraff out of the out of the building and, and turn it around, right? So. Uh, certainly, it takes a, a certain amount of capital, and and more, just as or more important than the capital, uh, expertise and, and experience to, to be good at adding that value. It's not just the people that live there that 
maybe you'd attract a different kind of a person if they had a washing machine and dryer in their unit or if they had a renovated unit it's not just that you need the expertise in a management team proper for the property itself how good are they what do they know how much do they care about their tenant pool you know it's not just being ready we have 96 percent occupancy if they're 96 percent are all of a quality that bring down the building and then you have to find the management that actually buys the property. Do they buy well? Don't they pay too much, right? So when you move your investors in at those three things, you really have to have an answer for Correct, correct. And I think if you're working with the right groups and you're finding these opportunities where you can add value, that's going to make the difference between whether, you know, you make a solid return over the next five to ten years or you just make a, a you know, a, a return that you, you get by with. And even more importantly, Ozzy, where the management comes in, is if you see a significant downturn because you know the way the way I've always explained it is you get some experience on the way up but you get the the real education on the way down <laughs> so if you can go and and find some groups that have seen you know have seen a few cycles yeah. before I think that's really where you're going to be grateful uh, for groups that have bought right and know how to manage yeah there's no question about it but you seem like you uh, enjoy what you do. What what do you enjoy the most? Man, for me, a good deal is like the adult version of show and tell, Ozzy. <laughs> you have one that comes across your desk. You go and you do your due diligence. When you get when I get one that I'm really excited about, I feel like it's my mission in the world to go and and bring it to the people. I mean, I'm not Robin Hood or anything like that. <laughs> we're, we're in it to make a good living, of course. Uh, but I really, really enjoy that. And the other part about real estate that, I, that has really attracted to me to it over the years, and I didn't know when I first got into this, when you are interested in anything, let's pick any topic of, of interest or any, yeah, any kind of common interest, whether it's tennis or, or real estate or dogs, you know, people get into all sorts of different things. I find that people that the people that tend to rally around real estate brings together the most wonderful group I've almost seen than any other topic of interest. And I've been grateful for that because it's not, not only can you go and, and get information and, and, and meet some wonderful people who are always willing to share what they know. They, they also have uh, helped me grow a lot uh, as, as a human. So, so I think when it comes to real estate, it's really the relationships. And I think real estate's a fantastic area or, or rallying point for people to get together and-, and I think once, once the investor or, or the, the novice even understands the principle of the leverage that's involved. You know, you buy that $100,000 property, yes, you only have 10,000 down. But you have the leverage of the property value increase on the 100,000. If it goes up 10%, you have increased your down payment by 100%. Whereas in the stock market, it it's could be possible too, but you don't really understand how the company really operates. Whereas in real estate, if you sit down with the property management, yourself as, a, as an investment dealer or the owners, or the you, you get an understanding that, oh, this is how it works. We increase the rent. The gross rent multiplier comes to play and all of a sudden we have an increase in value, we have options, we can refinance it. All of that without the general market actually changing, but the cap rate, the income changing. And that's what makes it, I guess, that wonderful environment that you talk about. Because once people understand that, they come to our big conferences and they walk away and think, 
could I do that, right? They start that possibility thinking, no question about it. But what, there must be challenges. So what are the challenges that you face in your business? Yeah, well, <laughs> there, are, there are a number of them. I'm, I'm really grateful to, to enjoy what I do. I think one of the toughest things right now is, is managing expectations. I just said we've had a great, we've had a great run for yeah. five to 10 years. And you know, <clears throat> thankfully we've done quite well on, on all the deals we've done with, with Hawkeye Wealth. And, and the hard part about that is when you get a deal that, let, let's say you get a deal that returns 10% per annum on your money and you have a client that's upset that they got 10% of our uh, on their money only that's five a, times what they got at the bank <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's hard right now people have done so well that managing yeah. expectations yeah. Uh, is a is a tough thing to do right now and thankfully I've gotten a little bit better at managing that when I whenever I onboard a client now uh, a question I try and ask is for you what's a good What's a good return? Sure. Before we get into the returns on any of the deals yeah. we're doing or talk yeah. anything about that for you, you know, if, if this deal sold and you say you want to know what, maybe this wasn't a home run return return, but this is a this is a good return. What would that number be? And I'm always amazed. About ninety percent of the clients come back with a number that's between seven and twelve percent. Yeah. Seven and twelve percent, and I like to set that expectation up first because because. When it comes back and you do a deal that you know maybe you perform it at fifteen percent, and it gives them ten percent, and then you know maybe a couple of years later they're like, oh, I don't know, Justin, and then it allows us to go and say, sure. remember when we were going into this, what a what a good return is, and well, particularly in the last ten earth. years we've had returns, particularly in the United States. First of all, you had a twenty percent return on the currency, in yes. depending on when you went in, and then you might have had an operating return of. of 10 or 15 percent so people have been spoiled yes and you and you don't want to use the assumptions of the past to predict the assumptions of the future I've just got no. I, I just finished saying that I don't think the next five years are going to be as good as the previous five so why would I use the historical performance to predict the future performance if that's my overarching belief the hard part that you get is when you use a more conservative pro forma it's hard to sell it's hard to sell because everyone's done so well yeah. that they're that they're comparing the their performance of their of the past deals they've done with with whatever you're putting in front of them sure. here. So it's about it's about resetting expectations, and I think finally clients are are coming around to it now, where they're realizing, you know, man, we've had a good run. Let's be grateful for the run that we've had, but let's go and recalibrate on on the risks that we're taking on and what our expectations are. Well, when you take a market like Vancouver, we had sort of a straight up and then we had a big hiccup. To my mind, um, that's part of the real estate market. You know, we seem to exaggerate on the upside and then everybody backs off um, because they're concerned. And then you read the paper and then you listen to the radio and the TV. And we stay longer down than we should. But if you look back 50 years, we have really had a incredible run through all the misery of the world, the Russian crisis, the currency crisis, the economic. And so we don't know, as you say, we don't know really what the next five years holds, but had you invested in real estate any time in the last 50 years and had an, a horizon that was beyond tomorrow I need the return, if you can wait two or three years, you've outperformed the market. So very interesting business that you're in. If, uh, if I can share one more thing too that I found that, that I think is interesting, when you do deals, we don't, 
typically when we're doing a private equity deal, we do it deal by deal. So if you want to invest, you come into this multifamily building or this industrial building. Um, our model so far hasn't been to do funds. And another, I don't want to call it a challenge in this business, but it, but it is a challenge, is if someone were to come into all of our deals, and, and like I say, thankfully here, we, we've, done, we've done very well on all of them. But if someone were to come into one of our deals, there's always the possibility that something will go wrong in one of those deals. And there's probably, you know, one or two people that this was the only deal sure. that, that they did. And that's a challenge of the model, too, because in this business, it's way easier not to care, Ozzy. And especially the more you go up, the more you go up the risk spectrum, the less you control the outcome. There's more things that can go sure. wrong. So your options are to either A, you, a lot of people just end up numbing themselves. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of people in the business, uh, I say it's another challenge of it is to stay in the business at the portion of the risk spectrum that we're in. I, I, we're certainly not in the very low end of, of the risk spectrum. We're, we're exposing our clients to some risk. That's a challenge in, in the business and to, to maintain the same level of caring. I don't know if I want to use the word sensitivity because it's got negative connotations, but, but I'm going to use the word sensitivity to, to caring uh, about the outcomes is difficult in this business. So if, if you're working, I, what I'd say to your listener is if you're working with someone that you, especially a little bit higher up the risk spectrum, because in the low risk spectrum, there's all sorts of people that's easy to care because they're not exposing you to risk. But if you find a little bit higher up the risk spectrum, people still care. You can tell it they're, they, they're doing their best to have your sure. back. I think that's more rare in this business. If you've got it, hold on to it. So do you think that's why client decides to work with you? Well, I hope so. I mean, I don't think we're, I don't think we're that unique in, in the aspect that we are a relationship. Well, we're, we're trust, we're trust based business, right? Ozzy, I remember uh, a number of years ago because I'm trying to ask, I'm trying to ask myself this question all the time. Why, why do clients mm -hmm. uh, work with us? And I remember one time, uh, a particular client that was working with my business partner, Mark Gafoa, I was kind of curious, you know, why did they choose to work with Mark? So I, I asked them, you know, why, why did you choose to work, work with Mark? And he said, yeah, you know, Justin, Mark's one of those guys that you just want your daughter to marry. <laughs> so is, that's what, <laughs> uh, so, so is that the main investment philosophy that drives your decision making? <laughs> Well, I, I mean, you know, I was thinking, you know, maybe if we just, if we can hire a whole bunch of people at Hawkeye that you'd feel comfortable having marry into your family, yeah. I think we would, yeah, uh, okay. I think we'd be okay. Maybe that'd be part of our interview process is bring our clients out and have them, uh, you know, tell me whether well, or not. You, you mentioned a number of your investment philosophies. Now I really know the secret, uh, the secret of them all. You ask them whether they would marry your daughter. <laughs> well, well I think that's why, I think it's mostly why people work, they, they work because they trust and the trust sure. is built over time and that's why I definitely view it as the uh, as the highest ri highest risk part of our uh, of our business but of course we give them opportunities that they might not that they might not see elsewhere okay. and we give them the information they need to make informed decisions but they don't, so they don't take that information deal, if they don't trust you well that's true but well, what kind of a due diligence do you do when you get into a, a new deal it's a uh, it's a long process usually for us Aussie we, we do it on two sides we do it on the issuer side, so we work with third parties. Ozzy, we don't we don't do our own right. deals. So our model is we find a strategy that we like. We find the group 
that we believe best executes on that strategy. A proven, proven backup. Of course. And then we, even those groups, once we vetted the groups, then of course on a deal by deal basis, sure. you still have to go and do your sure. due diligence on the deals, right? So first of all, with the groups that we that we choose to work with, because believe me, there's a lot of people out there that want your listeners' money. There's there's no lack of people out there that, that think they have the best deal for you. So our job, and we get contacted on a weekly basis with uh, with groups sure. that want to work with us, Aussie. What we usually do is try and weed them out as fast as as possible. A, sure. are they executing on a strategy we like? If it's not, out. Yeah. It's just not not interested. Unless it's a killer group that we think might later execute on a strategy that we like what is the, what has their been their past performance and their track record what's their reputation in the industry it's a small world we live in ozzy if i mm. if there's a new group that i meet the chances that you or a couple other people that are very well connected in this business know this group and can tell me something about them and whether they would do business with them is pretty high mm-hmm. uh, especially here on in vancouver and on on the west coast toronto's yeah. a little bit bigger a little bit harder um, maybe the U.S. as well, but s- small world here. So we go and we ask it. We ask around, right? One of my personal favorites is is when they call when issuers call us and they need money right away. One of my instinctual response to them is, "Well, I don't, I'm not going to be able to help you on this deal." No. But maybe we should grab a coffee here sometime and you know see if maybe over the next year or two we might be able to work together. Yeah, because any time that waits till the last minute or who backed away from that deal at the last minute or did you really leave it this long? What's yeah. wrong? You know, it, yeah. it, 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 so, so, and if they're not willing to plant a long-term seed, if, it, if they're not willing to plant a long-term seed, then I'm a long-term guy. Mm-hmm. That you know, if they're not willing to get to coffee, get together for coffee, knowing that we might do a lot of business a year or two, three down the road, yeah. then that's just not the mindset. That's not the culture. That's just you know, it's a pretty good indicator that you're not the one for me. So, so a lot of our due diligence is based around, uh, based around the issuers, right? And and these questions and a few others we ask eliminate ninety plus percent of the groups that that approach us because otherwise I think that's so entire... that's what your clients so want they want you to take a good hard look at who operates it at if they had the time or the wherewithal or the know-how to do it themselves they would so once you establish trust that's what they expect from you to do no question about it well look with all the things that are going on in this world um, of course depending on when you listen to this this world means it's uh, September of 2019 sort of we're in the middle of having seen a huge turnaround in interest rate uh, structures around the world, there's forecasts of the world going into a recession and all sorts of things going on. What investment strategies do you like right now? We're still heavily involved in in multifamily in the US uh, with the greater opportunity to add value, the better. It certainly wouldn't be a time that we're going into class A in many markets in the US. I just think there's a little bit too much uncertainty. I'd rather I'd rather count on proven models of of value add and in many ways and, and a lot of veteran investors make the argument that workforce housing in the US is almost the new core mm-hmm. and and in many ways less risky than your your downtown class A assets just because of that that value add component and the fact that okay. the replacement cost is, yeah yeah you, you can't just it's you can't build new supply at the same price we're buying 
we're buying this at. So, so when it comes to the rents that you can afford to charge, you can afford to charge a lot lower rents than many of the new buildings that are being bought. So we yeah. still really like workforce housing uh, in the U.S. And, and so of course, you need to know what the is markets. the population? Are people moving there? Is is Microsoft moving its uh, its plant or something? Do you have to study a local market area? I always preach that values go where people go and people go where the jobs are. So very, very important that uh, that, that is studied and saying the building might be right and the, the price might be right, but everybody is leaving, right? There's a reason why in Shell Lake, uh, Saskatchewan, a building lot is only $1. The reason is people are leaving Shell Lake, right? So, and anyways, point is, so the investment strategies you look like right now United States. And yeah, like like multifamily in the U.S. Also, like industrial locally here in the Lower Mainland. We don't like much else in the Lower Mainland here as of September 2019. Let's go and timestamp it again. Um, for a few reasons, it's it's very difficult to get cash flow in any asset class, and actually, industrial doesn't even break the mold in terms of. Well, prices have gone up so dramatically the last uh, two or three years. And. You know, it's hard to know what, even even the industrial market, it's hard to know what, what it's going to do in the next two, three, four years. But what, what we do know is that there is a serious shortage of land uh, available to sure. build out industrial properties. Over the decades, many cities have pulled land out of, out of uh, industrial zoning and, and turned it into residential just to... Sure. to go and build more more housing units and and what that means is there's been a lot of research done on the topic here but we estimate that they're going to be out of industrial land in the lower mainland within the next 10 years sure and it's not like it's not like residential where you just build up oh we just need to mm. go and do 30 sure. 30 story industrial the logistics issues around Can't drive that truck up to the 10th floor <laughs> yeah and and they're trying i mean there's there's been there's a couple projects going on that are proposing you know two two three stories because yeah. it's it's going to get there eventually but it's very difficult and and expensive, expensive to do right. so what we believe is there might be some volatility over the next few years maybe it's one of those feast before the famine situations where there's a whole bunch of supply built out over two three four five years while there's still land available everybody's Everybody's, you know, building and 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 maybe their vacancies creep up. We got the lowest vacancies in North America in industrial right now. Yeah. But if you're able to hold on to that property, eventually you've just you'll be in a situation where there's just no land left. There's well, and most cities in Canada have land that they expand in all directions. Whereas in the lower mainland, we got the ocean, we got the mountains, and we got the U.S. border. So we ca there's only really only so much land available you're right and the, and a lot of a lot of warehousing for example doesn't want to go too far east because they want to be able to deliver within you know it's in this world where you want to click and have it at your doorstep three seconds later and you need you transportation orientation yeah. all that okay well we know what your strategies are what what are you shying away from uh, well for all the reasons that we're we're moving towards industrial we're shying away from retail um, yeah. Not that I necessarily believe it's going to die anytime soon. It's just when you've got all these different options available, it's not about is it a is it a bad option. It's what the question you're asking is what's the best. Yeah. <laughs> what are the best options, right? And with the change in in the way people are shopping, it oh, is it's, sure online. It's going towards e-commerce, and I usually bring this comment up as well. My my wife is from Shanghai, and I'm in Shanghai almost yearly, 
and I'm amazed at how rapidly they've how much more rapidly they've adopted online shopping and what I've concluded is that a big part of that is that they've got a much lower cost of delivery in in China for two reasons mm. they've got density it's high rise sure. high rise high everybody lives in condos so so you've got density which means you don't have to travel as far to deliver yeah. things and then you've got a low cost of labor you've got scooters and, sure. and bikes and just ripping around everywhere delivering stuff all day long and everyone has Amazon you know or it's not actually Amazon sure. that most people use in China sure. but there's storage lockers that deliver it uh, deliver it right to you so so in China when I go to the malls you'll be amazed how quiet many of them are in the middle of Shanghai sure. this isn't these aren't ghost cities these sure. are you know very uh, well you look in the United States I, I did a little blurb in Ozbus uh, last week where uh, some 6,000 stores have closed in 2017, another 3,800 in 2018. So clearly, if you're in a mall and the next door neighbor closes and the other one closes, all of a sudden fewer people come. 1,100 malls altogether have shut down last year. So clearly, that's why I say the online delivery now needs maybe downtown storage. So maybe there's some industrial warehouse space actually downtown you need. If it's overnight, you can't really be uh, 50 miles away or there's costs attached and the drones are gonna maybe a while off before they can deliver Yeah, them. well the technology, the, the drones are maybe still a little ways out but the but the delivery robots are, yeah. are pretty much here and that's what the great equalizer, I think they're a little bit ahead of us in China but I think what the great equalizer here for us because we don't have density, yeah. we don't have low costs of labor, yeah. we have yeah. you know low density, high cost of labor but robots, robots can solve that, they don't cost much, they're pretty low maintenance that way and, and they can they can travel some some distance so yeah we, we remain very excited the, the argument that a lot of people make for retail and I want to say it makes me laugh because I don't mm -hmm. I want to say I laugh mm -hmm. but the argument is well look at all these things that just look at all these retail shops you know the dentists and all these that are never going to be able to you know that, that are never going to uh, go online right you can't get your teeth mm -hmm. done online because that's the that's the argument sure. a lot of people make for retail right and the point isn't you know are there not going to be some businesses that still need a place to set up shop? The point is, if you have a certain subsection of these businesses, let's call it 10% of them, that are getting replaced by e-commerce, what does that do to vacancy rates? Sure. Does that it moves them? So you might still have eight of the ten, eight nine of the ten businesses that you had five years ago still in business, but those those one two businesses that have sure. gone out, you've now got 10, 20, 30 percent vacancies in your units, and what happens to your rental rates? Yeah. So clearly the retail market is very dangerous. I it spend is. a lot of time talking about how much I don't like the retail market, <laughs> but it's, but I, no, no, uh, it's just no question. But the point is uh, your clients will know that too and how you feel. Do you have any last uh, few words uh, for, um, for the markets in general? How do you see the future and um, potential clients? Um, I would say now is a great time to recalibrate recalibrate your expectations in terms of what you should be expecting for performance uh, recalibrate for the assumptions that you're using when you're going and doing due diligence and running your pro formas I would say now is a time to be patient and I don't say this as an excuse not to take action we should always be taking action but be prepared when you're making decisions to to be in these things for a while right now because uh, I, I really don't believe the markets are going to be for the next five years what they've been for the previous for the previous five. So be patient. I think 
uh, along with you that long-term real estate is the place to be and we're you know we're always excited as i said when we've got a new deal to go and show and tell it to you and your listeners so if there's anything we can ever do to help you know we're here. well do you see the world's now going maybe towards zero percent interest rates so maybe 10 percent is going to look wild just wonderfully a few years from now Justin, thank you so much for taking the time out of your hectic schedule and join us at Ozbuzz. Anybody that wants to see you, what's your website? Uh, yeah, our, our website is hawkeyewealth.com. Again, that's hawkeyewealth.com. Or if anybody wants to reach out to me personally, I'm justin at hawkeyewealth.com. Sounds good. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Ozzy.